This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Today we have two guests. First, we preview the NFL Draft with Dane Brugler from The Athletic. Dane has published a monster draft guide, which you can get as part of your subscription to The Athletic. He also has released his top 300 players. We will talk with him about who might be going where and what teams and players could provide some intrigue come Thursday when the first round happens. Then we'll catch up with new old Miss coach Lane Kiffin. Since it's draft week, we'll get his thoughts on Alabama quarterback Tua Tagovailoa, who Kiffin recruited while he was offensive coordinator for the Tide. We'll talk with Lane about what it's been like to take over a team during a pandemic lockdown and what drew him to Ole Miss. Plus, we'll discuss his unique career trajectory. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast and Apple Podcast and just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me up first on the podcast is Dane Brugler from The Athletic. He is one of the best in the business when it comes to analyzing the draft and scouting the players, giving us an idea where people might be going. Dane, thanks so much for joining me on what is, uh, I'm sure, a a super busy week. But I also imagine for you, this has got to be a little bit of like sort of staring at the finish line. Yeah, no doubt. It's a uh, it's a marathon uh, that starts in the summer, and you know you go through the season, you go through the draft process, and obviously this year has been much much different than than in past years. But it's just it feels good to have a sporting event to look forward to. So this year has a little bit extra anticipation uh, along with it. Yeah, let's start with that thing. And I agree with you. I mean, I know the NFL has taken a little criticism here and there about like, hey, could you have put this off? And with everything that's going on. I'm not in that boat. Uh, I'm just dying for some kind of real sports to dig into, and I've always been a fan of the draft, so I am more than happy to see this thing play out. Give me a little perspective from when you talk to folks who are in the league about, you know, I feel like I I've, I have to laugh when I hear about all the glitches and how it's going to be so complicated. It's like, can't you guys just text to Goodell? Like, how, I mean, really, how difficult? So I don't want to necessarily talk about what it's going to be like on Thursday and Friday, but sort of what how the, the process itself had to conform because of social distancing and the fact that people can't travel. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, on the outside looking in see, okay, well, we've got a full season of tape. You have the combine. What else do you need? I mean, you, you let's let's draft. Uh, but there is, you know, portions of the process that we're going to be missing. Uh, part of that's the pro days, and it's not just the forty yard dashes, but it's a chance for uh, these non combine guys uh, to get noticed, and you know, some of these testers that teams will take a chance on later in the draft. It's just we're not going to have that this year. Uh, you know, Joe Burrow was talking about how 
he was just how, how, how bad he felt about not having a combine or not having a pro day. And it wasn't because, you know, he feels good about going number one overall, but it's because of the, the non-combine guys at LSU that wouldn't be able to show off what they could do. Because, you know, he knows all the scouts that would have came to Baton Rouge to watch him. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a missed opportunity for some of those other players. And, uh, you know, the medical rechecks are much, much different this year uh, in terms of teams being able to get their doctors uh, looking at players. And I think the biggest thing that we're missing from this process that we usually have are the 30 visits. Each team has the opportunity to invite a, a prospect, 30 prospects, to their facility uh, for a chance, uh, kind of a, an extended meet and greet where uh, you can meet all the coaches and the personnel staff and the trainers. You can get updated medicals. Uh, you can talk X's and O's. You can get to know the person, not just the player. Uh, so, you know, that's where teams, uh, they'll, they'll have these 30 visits and a, a player will leave and they'll cross them off their list and say that just wasn't a fit for us, culture-wise, scheme-wise, whatever the reason. Some guys, they'll leave and all of a sudden, that's okay. That's who we want to draft. So not having those 30 visits uh, and some, some teams got theirs in uh, a few of them, but not having the full, uh, full range of 30 visits. That, that's something that these teams, it, they're missing from the process this year, which makes things a little different for, for those of us on the outside, they were breadcrumbs as a way to kind of see how teams were leaning with those 30 visits. But for, uh, for the teams, it's definitely a missed opportunity. Okay, so let's. I might get a little deep in the weeds, but I don't want to start deep in the weeds. I want to start towards the top here. But I, I guess I want to frame the question this way, because you know, as let's say as someone who who does a lot of uh, baseball fantasy drafts, right? I will put my players in tiers, and I'm wondering not necessarily by position, but overall, you put out your top 300 today on the available on the Athletic. Do you see? tiers and if you could sort of explain your tiers among let's say that top 50 or so yeah and i think that the way i do it is you know breaking up guys who i think are solid first rounders guys who i think are on that cusp first or second rounders and the same thing for every single round um so you know every year i usually have about 16 or 17 guys that i view as solid first rounders and then uh, another you know 15 or so who are uh, borderline and then that extends into the second and the late second round i think that's how you know it's different for teams because obviously you know my board uh, 300 guys on it there are draft boards around the league that have 120 names uh you know just they because they, it's when they boil it down to the culture and the scheme and exactly what they're looking for uh you know the patriot way or uh you know exactly when you look you know the browns with uh when you incorporate the metrics and the analytics into the type of player they're looking for um you know each team's draft board uh, is much smaller than say my top 300 but definitely use kind of that tier system based off of, you know, how you project them. Are they solid ones? Are they borderline, solid twos, that kind of thing? So who is in the first tier? Um, and, you know, let's – okay, well, let's let's be – let's get rid of the obvious ones. I, I Chase, Chase mm-hmm. Young, um, I assume at least a couple of quarterbacks, Burrow and, and Tua, uh, mm-hmm. a, a few receivers in Lamb, Judy. Is Henry Ruggs in the first tier? Him and Jefferson are for me. Him and Jefferson are in the first tier. Uh, at yeah. least three tackles. I'm thinking Werfs, Becton, and Wills. Um, at that point, it starts getting a little more fuzzy. Jeff Akuda, Isaiah Simmons, maybe C.J. Henderson. So mm-hmm. who who are some – I think at that point, again, if it becomes a little more fuzzy, who are the rest of your guys in that first tier that you think, okay, solid first-rounders? 
I think he might have named them all except for um, Chase on. I don't I can't remember. Yeah, I didn't get him. Chase on. Um, okay. uh, yeah, Andrew Thomas from Georgia. Okay. Uh, that that fourth tackle. Um, because there's there are some teams that have Andrew Thomas as their top tackle on the board. Um, uh-huh. you know he's he's battle tested, three year starter uh, in the SEC, right tackle uh, as an All American as a freshman, moved over to left tackle. Um, I have my issue with Andrew Thomas is the balance concerns. But I still think he's one of the top 15 players uh, in this draft. And I think he's going to be a solid starter for a long time. I just view Jedrick Wills as the best tackle I personally uh, have evaluated. And then Wirfs shortly after that, Becton after that, and then Andrew Thomas. But I think all four of those tackles are in that top tier. Uh, and I think they're going to be off the board somewhere in the first 14 picks, maybe even earlier. The tackles seem interesting because it, when I see when I read your stuff and other people's, it seems like I can get a different view of that top three or four from mm-hmm. a lot of different folks, um, as opposed to maybe in some cases, you know, where there's an obvious one or two uh, at a position, and then the rest of them start lining up. Like I, I will see just as many people with it seems like Will's one as Worf's one as as Becton one. Uh, Thomas seems to be a little more outside that general again consensus here. But it's interesting the way the tackles are lining up. What was the thing that sort of pushed you over the top for Wills? Really, when I sat down and watched uh, the the Auburn film um, uh, from the Iron Bowl, uh, it was it was that first week in December, right after Thanksgiving. I got the got the film uh, in my inbox that morning, opened it up, and Wills was already trending in the right direction for me. I was like, okay, this guy is really good. He's he's you know it, coming into the year. He was kind of viewed as that enforcer, that masher in the run game, a guy who was coming along in pass protection. And then I watched that Auburn game, and that just it clicked for me. I mean, this guy is the best tackle that I've seen throughout the process. Uh, he's it's funny. He has his arm length is just over thirty four inches, uh, so two inches shorter than Andrew Thomas. But they have the same wingspan. So that speaks to just how wide Jedrick Wills is. Uh, but for a guy that's that wide and that broad, he, he moves really well. Uh, so he's able to uh, protect the corner against speed. He's able to protect the inside moves against counters. Uh, he has length. He has flexible hips. Uh, there's a lot to like about Jedrick Wills with his movement skills. The big question is just can he play left tackle? Uh, he was a right tackle only in college. Now the context there is... Obviously, he was protecting the blind side of Tua, uh, but he was a right tackle in high school as well. So that's something that we're missing from this. Uh, I mentioned uh, you know, the draft process in March that we're kind of missing. Uh, teams aren't able to send their offensive line coach to Tuscaloosa or wherever Jedrick Wills is working out and put him in a left tackle stance and see how he moves and the muscle memory and things like that. So that that's a, a part of the evaluation uh, that could hurt a player like Wills. And, you know, he he's my top tackle and I know he's a top tackle for several other teams. But he might be the third tackle drafted. He could be the fourth tackle drafted just because of not having that tangible evidence that he could play left tackle. So these these tackles are, are really an interesting group. Okay, the two guys I think I forgot in your locks after looking at your board here, Derek Brown, clearly a, right, a, a right. first-rounder from Auburn, the defensive tackle. Another defensive tackle, does Javon Kinlaw make the cut as a, as a first-round, you know, sort of a lock first-round grade to you? He does, but and this is where it's tough for you know people like me uh, and us on the outside. 
um, you know, the medicals are something that plays a part. And there's been some things with uh, Javon Kinlaw where, uh, you know, he, he left the senior bowl early with knee tendonitis. Uh, you know, he had hip surgery last off season. Uh, some teams have uh, flagged him for a back issue. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on besides just what we see on the tape that could hurt a player like that. But watching him just as a, as a talent, 6'5", 325 pounds, with his length, with his movement skills, uh, and a guy who is a late bloomer, uh, you know, just has a fascinating backstory, you know, goes to JUCO level and then goes to South Carolina where, you know, the production wasn't impressive. He had only six tackles for loss last year. But when you look at how he was used and lining up head up over the center as a, as a two gapper and at, being asked to be the nose tackle, and you know, he just wasn't given those opportunities to let loose and be productive uh, it, it, in the backfield. So, you know, that, that's something you can look past because the talent just jumps off the off the film. And so I, with Ken Law, I think he's a first round talent, no doubt. The medicals could be something that maybe throw that off uh, when it's all said and done Thursday night. Yeah, the reason why I love Kinlaw in my own like layman's point of view is that like he doesn't look like a three hundred and twenty five pound guy. He has a yeah. he has a strange build in that he carries it so easily. Um, because because as you said, because of his length, uh, and so he ends up being one of my my favorite prospects, just because like he just doesn't look as big as he is to a certain degree, or he looks a lot sleeker for a guy who's a three hundred twenty four pound uh, defensive tackle. So I guess yeah. the other guy who I'm wondering if you had a a lock first round grade, because he's no doubt a lock first rounder and and maybe even a lock top ten pick because he's a quarterback, and that's Justin Herbert. You have him at number eighteen on your board, which is right around that area where I will ask you. Do you have him as a solid first round grade, even though we know because of the position he plays and the value that's placed on that position, he's going in the first round. He's going high up in the first round. More than likely. Absolutely. Uh, But no, for me, he's a borderline guy. He's in that second tier Um, with Justin Herbert. He's a tough guy to love, an easy guy to like Uh, when you watch him. Uh, you know, he looks exactly how you want a quarterback to look. He's 6'6", 240. And most guys that that size are a little awkward with their athleticism, but not Justin Herbert. I mean, he the way he moves is really smooth, really easy, light-footed. Uh, and then, of course, his arm. I mean, he gets to put, put the ball anywhere he wants on the field. Uh, you also factor in that he's a 4.01 GPA student, uh, won the academic Heisman, the the Campbell Trophy, uh, and then on paper, four-year starter coming off a senior year where he won the Pac-12, run the won the Rose Bowl. Uh, there's so much to like about him when you just look at him on paper and, and the raw numbers, but there's just something missing from his film that just it's it, it makes it tough to fall in love with him as a next-level passer. And I think part of it comes down to uh, you know when the play breaks down, he doesn't always have that quick-minded approach where he can use those gifts to his advantage, where he can use his legs and his arm to make things happen. Um, you know, he wasn't super productive uh, in college. He he was never better than honorable mention All Pac-12, which you know that doesn't matter that much. It's not like a team's not going to draft him because of that, but it just speaks to you know kind of what I'm saying, where there's just there's something missing from his film that really makes it tough to fall head over heels for a play like that. There are a few plays on every single tape where it makes you go, wow, okay, the talent is clearly there. But in terms of the body work and from start to finish, all four all four quarters, there just weren't many games where you looked at it and said, okay, that was a signature game. And it, there are games, you know, the 
opener last year against Auburn, uh, the Arizona State tape, that kind of, it's hard to get some of those negative plays out of my mind. So I like Justin Herbert, but I, I'm not ready to project him as a pro bowler or a guy that, you know, you're going to plug in and you're going to instantly be a, a productive, more productive team next year competing for the division. I think he's going to need help around him and he's going to need more pro coaching. So it's going to be interesting to see where he ends up on draft night. Uh, if it's going to be as high as, say, five to the Dolphins, uh, would he go six to the Chargers? Uh, I think you're right. I mean, he plays the right position. And like I kind of mentioned, everything he has going for him, some team's going to fall in love with that. Okay, so let's stick on the quarterbacks here. I guess my one thing, if I was to play devil's advocate on Herbert, is I always felt like he had very underwhelming support around him, not necessarily with as far as protection. His offensive line was actually really good, and he's got maybe Mm -hmm. the best offensive lineman in the country on next year's draft that he played with the last two years in Penny School. But I always felt like his receivers were just like, you you watch so many Oregon games and think, like, can this guy get a little help here? (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, It just seems like they never made big catches for him. However... I do generally agree with your your assessment of him. He he has never found I've never found him to be like this like oh this is a clear franchise quarterback which is what you see I think at least what I see when I see Tua Tagovailoa play. Um, right. So let's talk about Tua because he's clearly one of the most fascinating players here because of the medicals and everything that surrounds him. Um, you have him I think as six overall. I, I guess the, the the fashionable question these days is. If Tua didn't get hurt, would he have been the number one player? If you could somehow magically take the injury out of it, does he is he a better prospect than Burrow? I, for me personally, I, I'd still go Burrow just because of everything he did last year. It was just so special, and that that confidence that he has, the decision making, he just has such a, a a keen understanding of everything going on on the football field. And so Joe Burrow really sold me as being the top quarterback this year, but I don't think that would be consensus. Um, you know, I think it, I have no idea what it would be, but maybe, you know, 60, 40 Burrow Tua in terms of, uh, you know, the best quarterback in this class. And, you know, I, there are teams, you know, the Redskins sitting there at number two, I'm sure they would have loved for Tua to stay healthy because all of a sudden they have some more trade options and, you know, the Lions at number three, maybe that means Chase Young would fall to them. So, um, and I just, I really hope he's able to stay healthy. Uh, the NFL, is it going to be a much better league uh, with a healthy Tua Tagovailoa with everything that he can do? Uh, he's one of the best just RPO passers I've ever evaluated. He's so smooth, so quick uh, with how he does. And and when I say quick, not just his movements, his feet, his release, but his mind, the way he sees things. Uh, He puts the ball out in front. So he gives his receivers a chance to go and make plays. And, you know, we'll hear a lot about how Tua had, you know, maybe four first round receivers on that team. Uh, You know, when Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell, when they come out next year and they end up going top 32 along with Ruggs and Judy this year. But, you know, he still has to put the ball in their hands to l- allow them to make things happen. And he, he was able to do that. He could be a distributor when he needed to be, but he could also be a playmaker when Alabama needed that as well. So I, I, I'm, you know, he would have been, it would have been one, two this year in terms of quarterback off the board. We would have had a trade up uh, or who knows, maybe the Redskins would have said, you know, we like you, Dwayne Haskins, but uh, two is an upgrade. And so uh, it's just unfortunate that the injury is a, so, so much of a factor and it really makes it hard to peg where he's going to land on, on draft night. Uh, is it going to be five or six, the Dolphins or Chargers? Could he fall past six? And if he does, where does he land? I think it's anybody's guess. So it's uh, there's no question. Tua is 
the headliner of uh, the first night of the draft. That's going to be the storyline. That's what the wild card is that everyone's going to be watching for. Okay, so he's the number one wild card player. Um, mm-hmm. Let's just shift very. I'm going to get back to players, but I want to get to teams now because you mentioned wild card. Um, who are the wild card teams as you sort of look at the first round here and think, not really sure what they're going to do. They could be primed to make a big move up or. Um, or maybe a big move back? Are there one or, let's say, two two or maybe three wild-card teams? Well, I think the Dolphins would fall into that category because we don't know what they're going to do at five. Uh, do they love Herbert? Uh, do they love Tua? Are they okay with the medicals? Would they possibly even go left tackle there and see if Jordan Love falls to them at, with the 18th pick? Because they have three first-round picks. And when you have so much ammo with your draft capital, you can make things happen uh, in terms of movement and moving around um, and getting the guys that you want uh, quality over over quantity. And then I would throw the Tampa Bay Bucks in that mix as well. Uh, you know, they they know with Tom Brady now in the fold, they have a specific one two year window where we're going for it. You know, it's no longer if. It's no longer about trying to develop guys for a year from now, two years from now. It's we need to win now. And so if they see a right tackle that is a plug-and-play guy that they think is better than the rest, then it wouldn't shock me if they go and get that guy. Or I, And I think they're just going to be aggressive because they understand the window they have to win uh, right now. So I think they're definitely a team to watch. And then I'd probably throw the Browns in there because they want out of that pick at number 10. Uh, so it wouldn't be shocking to see them move back and possibly the Broncos uh, at 15, the Falcons at 16, see one of those two teams maybe move up because they're looking for corner help. They're looking for uh, the Broncos, maybe looking for a receiver, trying to get in front of the Raiders there at 12. We're going to see some trade action. Uh, no question about it. Once we get into those early teens uh, and I, I think the Browns at number 10, they're, they're willing to get out of there. So uh, that's going to be kind of the, the first phone call a lot of those teams make. How deep does your second tier go? Because I would imagine that that goes a long way toward telling you how deep the draft is. If you have a second tier that is is maybe fifty players, that means mm-hmm. the difference between number tw- you know the number twenty player and the number fifty player might not be that different. And you could see a, a guy going in the, in the uh, middle of the second round or the end of the first round. So I'm wondering how deep your second tier is. Yeah, and for me personally, it's about 16 players. Uh, but, I mean, to your point, it, it you could lump a lot of those guys together, the one-twos and then the, the second-round guys. Um, you know, it, it's something where once you get outside the top 18, 19 picks, there's not going to be a huge difference between pick number 21 and then pick number 42. Uh, you know, there's obviously guys are going to be a little more talented, but it's not a huge uh, disparity, and I think especially at certain positions, uh, you know, you look at uh, the uh, the tackle group. We're going to see four tackles go in the top 14, 15 picks, but then there's another four tackles that are going to round out the top 40 picks. Uh, you know, we're not Josh Jones from Houston and Austin Jackson, USC, Ezra Cleveland, Boise State, Isaiah Wilson, Georgia. Good chance we see six, maybe even seven tackles go in the first round, and then we see another tackle early in the second round. So eight tackles in the first 40 picks, and then there's a little bit of a drop-off. And that's part of the reason we're going to see so many tackles early because teams know we better get our guy uh, early or we're going to be left without a chair uh, later on. Um, you know, we're going to look at uh, you know linebacker with uh, you know Isaiah Simmons as the crown jewel, but Kenneth Murray, Patrick Queen, Zach Bond. Those are some really interesting options uh, once you get to the back half of round one. So I think this draft, uh, you know, the 
I don't know that we have as many superstars at the top. We definitely have you know Chase Young, Joe Burrow. I would consider those guys superstars. But I think we have pretty good depth this year in terms of overall talent in the top 40, top 50 picks. Yeah, how many receivers? Because I mean, it looks like we talked about the tackles and where maybe there's a drop off, enough of a drop off that teams might be in a rush to get their guy within the first round or maybe just slightly after the into the second round. But with the wide receivers, there seems to be so many of these guys that after mm-hmm. the first couple, you know, two or three, uh, there's talk that maybe everybody just sort of hangs back and says, yeah, you know what, I'll grab my really good guy in the middle of the second or end of the second or, or early in the third. Right. No, 100%. And uh, yeah, we're going to see teams say, okay, we'll get our corner here in the first and we'll wait because we feel good about the depth that'll be available for us in the second round. Uh, you know, we, we feel good that we can get LaVisca Chenault in the second or a Michael Pittman at a USC. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to see the order that these receivers come off the board and then how many go uh, in the first round. I think we'll definitely see four uh, you know, with uh, Judy and Lamb and Ruggs and Jefferson. And then you know, maybe we see one or two others with, say, Brandon Ayuk, Denzel Mims. I think both those guys have a good chance to sneak into round one. Uh, but then there's really no drop-off into the second. Uh, and, and you're talking about your Pittmans, your Jalen Ragers, uh, you know, your LaVisca Chenault. And Chenault, he's a first-round talent. It just comes down to the medicals with him. If you feel like he's going to stay healthy, uh, I mean, I, you, you can, really can't take him uh, too high if he's available in you know, the 20s. That, that's, that's worth that pick. Uh, but, yeah, this receiver class as a whole, it's on average we have about 12.5 receivers that go in the top 100 every year. Good luck trying to live. Uh, you know, your your top 100 receivers this year, you, you get down, you're like at 18, 19, 20, <laughs> and you're like, geez, I, I don't want to leave this guy out. But it's, you know, history tells us there's just not enough landing spots. If we have 16 receivers go top 100, that's half the NFL drafting a receiver in the first three rounds. So it's just a loaded group this year. There are going to be some really talented players like a, a KJ Hill or a Devin DuVernay or James Crochet from SMU. There's going to be some really talented receivers that are still on the board or have a chance to still be on the board in, in round four. Okay, last one for you here. We'll go a little deep. A couple of deep cuts. I want you to go outside, let's say, your top 100 because that, that's at that point you're talking about guys who are third-day guys, uh, fourth mm-hmm. round and lower. Give me some of just personal favorites, maybe two or three guys who you like who are going to be late, you know, late round draft picks, but you think have the ability that, you know, again, just your personal Dame Brugler favorites. Well, I think that uh, Antonio Gibson falls in that from Memphis, who he was a receiver at Memphis, but he's teams are viewing him more as a running back six foot 230 pounds he just makes things happen uh when he has the ball in his hand so he's a really fun player who i think should go in uh day two area but if he's still around on day three love the value at that point um i think you know you look at on defense john reed from penn state uh the size is going to hurt him he's about 510 a buck 87 only 30 inch arms he also has an acl injury Mm -hmm. uh two years ago but you watch him, and he, he he's like a mosquito at a barbecue. Uh, he just annoys receivers uh, with his man cover skills, uh, the way he competes. Uh, he has good ball production. So as long as the medicals are okay with John Reed, I would have no problem taking him anywhere on day three and plugging him in either as a nickel or a guy that can maybe – to, you know, have some outside snaps. Uh, Gino Stone from Iowa, uh, another guy who had you know disappointing uh, testing at the combine, but you watch the film and the instincts, uh, the football IQ, the way he can anticipate 
uh, the play recognition. That, that's what you're looking for. Uh, now, you can't be a bad athlete, but you could be an average athlete uh, by NFL standards and still make plays at, at the next level if you're able to understand what the offenses are doing, read your keys, diagnose, and make plays. And I think Geno Stone could do that. So, um, and now if we non-combine guys, you know, usually every year we have about 35. Yeah, give me, give me one or two it, of them. Yeah, it's going to be closer to the single digits. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Kevin Dotson from Louisiana, uh, shocked he wasn't at the... Yeah, big guard. Uh, yeah, like 350. Yeah, a mauling guard. Yeah. Uh, and he moves pretty well for a big man. So he could be that first non-combi guy drafted maybe fourth, fifth round. And then uh, Josh Pearson from Jacksonville State uh, had trouble staying academically eligible earlier in his career. But then the last two years combined for 30 touchdown catches uh, as a junior and senior. So Josh Pearson is uh, one of these receivers who could get hear their uh, name called later on in the draft. Dane Brugler uh, is a draft analyst for The Athletic. He does an amazing job. Great stuff, Dane. Really appreciate you squeezing me in on a busy week for you. Good luck on, again, getting through the marathon, crossing that finish line, and have a, have a beer or two on me when you do, okay? I, I definitely take you up on that. Thanks, Ralph. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. My next guest on the podcast is new Ole Miss coach Lane Kiffin. Lane, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you are well, hope you're staying healthy, and hope you're staying safe. I am. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, hey, let's start with that. You get a a new job. You're pumped to be an SEC head coach again uh, at Ole Miss, and then all of a sudden everything comes grinding to a halt because of the pandemic. We've talked with other coaches about this, but when you're a new coach at a new program, you're just getting to learn your players. What has this been like for you as far as, again, just getting to know your team, and, and how can you continue to do that when you're not in the same place as them? Yeah, that's very difficult, Ralph. Um, you know, I like to be positive, but you, know, you also got to be, <clears throat> you know, factual too. With, you know, this is a, obviously a disadvantage for first-year, you know, staffs. Uh, you know, miss spring ball, um, the time on the field with the players, the time off the field with the players. You don't know your roster, you know. Versus if you're returning team, you know, like FAU, you know, we're going into, we've been going in our fourth year. You know, the team up and down, so. Um, we're doing the best we can, whether it's Zoom meetings, you know, position meetings, you know, motivational speakers for the guys, but not easy. Yeah, there's a lot more rules that have sort of come into focus here. I felt like for about a month there, maybe three, four weeks, it was a little bit of like, uh, what exactly does this mean? What are we allowed to do? And, and are we allowed to do the same thing as some other school is allowed to do? I talked to David Shaw about that. He felt there was some, you know, some vagaries. It, it's, last week there was some movement to make it a little more standardized. Do you think you're at the point now where everybody is sort of doing the same thing around the country? I'm not sure. I don't really follow, you know, the other conferences and those things. And I just know what, you know, we can do and how we try to maximize it. So let me ask you about one quick thing that went on. It was a minor controversy in the SEC for about a minute and a half uh, with uh, your former employer, Alabama, with the Apple Watches. 
Did you find that was, I don't know, pushing the limits of the rules at all? Or is it something that you thought, hey, that's a great idea. We should do it. Um, I thought it was a great idea. You know, um, you know, I think there was, like you said, a lot of uncertainty. Okay, can you do that? You know, you know can you give these to all the kids? And, you know, and then there's also rules about we can't monitor our kids when they're away from us, too. You know, and so, you know, like we can't right now, you know, have our kids, you know, tell us, you know, the workouts that they're doing and report to us, you know, because this is like the off season. So um, I think there was just some confusion there. Okay, Lynn, so it's draft week, and I need to get your opinion on a, on a player who's been the talk of the draft, if not, you know, the number one player that's going to get the most attention, and that's Tua. Uh, you had a chance to recruit him to Alabama, though never got a chance to coach him. But what are your impressions of him? I'm sure you've had a chance to see some of the videos and things along those lines. But tell us about sort of Tua the person and why you might think that he is a he's a guy who is well prepared to either jump, not just jump to the NFL, but overcome this adversity. You know, I just said earlier on, on something else, you know, when asked about, you know, if you were five, six, whatever, you know, your general manager, would you pick him and how do you justify it? I said, well, you know, if he's not left in that Mississippi State game, you know, you're talking about this guy for the first pick of the draft. So, you know, we can we have a chance to get arguably the top player in the draft, you know, at five or six. You know, we're pretty lucky. So I, I just did a story in it about sort of how you figure out the it factor in quarterbacks. You guy who coaches offense and because coach quarterbacks, you know, we can we can measure their arm strength. We can measure them there 40 times and all those things. How do you go about trying to measure that? Whatever that intangible thing is that comes with leadership and loving the game and be the ability to sort of be a guy who the team rally rallies around. How do you go about measuring that? That's the number one question. You know, it's easy to have a stopwatch, you know, or to bring out a scale. Um, but you know, that's the hardest thing. That's why it's missed on all the time. I mean, the NFL, all the testing, all the time they're around them. You know years of college film and they screwed up all the time. So, you know, coming out of high school, it really gets screwed up a lot. Um, it's very difficult. You know, you just kind of a lot of times got to talk to their coaches, but a lot of times you don't know, you don't know until you have it, until you have them, um, you know, and it's not something you can teach. You know, some of these kids just have it when lights go on at all positions, but especially that one. You talk about talking to their coaches and things like that. One of the things I hear a lot of, you know, not, don't just talk to the people on the team, talk to the people around the team and how they treat people and things along those lines. Do you do the talk to the secretary, talk to the janitor type thing, talk to classmates who maybe aren't on the football team when you're out trying to recruit a quarterback? Sure. Yeah. Our, you know, we're not allowed, head coaches can't go out in the spring. And, you know, so we don't get to get out very much, but our assistant coaches, you know, that's a big part of evaluating all all positions, but especially that position, you know, to figure out who they really are because, you know, then when you get them, you know, especially in university, the true colors come out. So I want to ask you about why you ended up landing at Old Miss, what was appealing there. But before I do, I think the last time I had a, I, I sat down and talked face-to-face with you, you were still the USC head coach. And, you know, part of what I ended up writing about is you've had an unusual career, man. Like you started in a place where a lot of people – end and then sort of went back and now have have sort of bounced up again it seems like you've had you've taken on really tough jobs at times when you were still learning this craft 
now that you're back at, in the SEC, have you taken any moment to sort of like think about your road and how you got here and maybe how it maybe has made you have prepared you for this moment of getting back and having this opportunity at Ole Miss? Yeah, it's very strange, Ralph. I mean, like you said, it's backwards, especially, you know, uh, start as in, you know, as your first head coach experience is in the NFL. That's like really backwards. 31, 31, college, 32. Were you Lane? Like 31. Yeah. I think. And, you know, and then you go to a top SEC school as a head coach. Then you go to one of the top five jobs in America as a head coach, you know, and then, you know, you're at Florida Atlantic, um, you know, in Conference USA. So, you know, that's usually about exactly opposite of what you normally do. So um, what's good is bad. What's bad is good and everything. And so, you know, when you get what you think is great at the time, you get those premier jobs at a young age. Everyone thinks that's awesome, but, you know, when you make your mistakes, you're on the national stage, you know, when other coaches get their first head jobs, you know, they're at a smaller school making mistakes and no one even knows it, you know, and they learn from them and then they work their way up. So, you know, it kind of, there's, there's good and bad to everything. What did you learn at FAU? You know, that you had three really good years there. Right. It was a different kind of experience because all of a sudden you were at a school that was sort of the quote unquote have nots, but they, they played great and won two conference championships. But what were some things that you learned at FAU that you maybe could not have learned at a place like USC or Alabama or the Raiders? Relationships with the kids, you know, and really helping them with things and, and that really learning that the head coaching job is way more than wins and losses. You know, and that's where you you get screwed up when you start getting defined by your job and the results and, you know, what the front of this, you know, what the front of the sports page says about you, you know? And so, you know, going there and most of the kids you're coaching aren't going to the NFL, you know, which is different than those other places. They all think they are, you know? And so I think learning what your real job is, which is to really help these kids, um, you know, through life, you know, off the field as much as on the field. I feel like I was kind of, you know, raised at those big places. And I always thought my job was, hey, my job is to make you the highest draft pick that you can win the most games, you know, and make you the most money. Did you ever at all doubt whether you get another chance? And I hate to I hate to say a big job because that's sort of a slight to FAU and I'm not meaning it that way. But at a, at a, at a certain point when you were either at Alabama as an offensive coordinator or you were at FAU, did you either think, A, I might not get another chance at a bigger job, or B, Maybe I don't want something. I mean, did you ever feel like, hey, man, this FAU thing is pretty good. Maybe I'm best just being here. Sure. I, I really enjoyed it, and everybody can say that. I, I was very happy, and I wasn't just leaving to, you know, take a job for more money, you know, or a bigger conference. It was a great place, great president, great leadership, um, great returning team that had just, you know, you know, blowing out the conference championship and, and then a, a bowl game. And so um, I, I was extremely happy and very comfortable, you know, and you're, you're living in Boca in South Florida, you know, your backyards, you know, a boat on the, on the intercoastal. And the other part of that is, did you ever doubt you maybe have a chance to get back to something bigger? Do you ever think uh, maybe the really opportunity wouldn't come? Way. Mm-hmm. I didn't really think of it that way, you know, because, again, I don't worry about what I can't control. So I worried more about our team and you know, helping those kids and, and turning the program around. 
and then whatever happens, happens. So then the opportunity comes, and what you know, listen, I think, yeah, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but I, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that you had more than one opportunity uh, to uh, from an SEC from SEC schools, or at least uh, at least interest from more than one SEC school. What ended up making you think Ole Miss was the right fit for you? Yeah, we're not naming names, but that that's accurate. There were multiple choices, and um, I just thought that. You know, one, there was, you know, some really good young players, especially on offense there. Um, you know, you're, you're getting to go against the best in the SEC West and best players, best coaches. And um, I'd been to Oxford before, you know, my brother was an assistant coach there. So I went there in the summer and saw what a special place it was. And also I was at Alabama for three years and we only lost two regular season games in three years. They were both told Miss, So, you know, it wasn't like a program that hadn't won before. You know, you were going to have to do something that had never been done before. So you mentioned some of those players, and let's talk a little bit. Again, you, know, you haven't had a chance to be around your team that much, but there's some pretty interesting uh, weapons to work with on the offensive side. Uh, John Rice, Rice Plumley being the, the main guy at quarterback. What have you made, been able to learn about your team and maybe some places where – Again, I, if I'm you, I'd be stressed out like mad because like I, I can't fix things. I can't work with these guys. I got so much to learn before a season kicks off, and who knows when that season would be. But are there any places where you got a chance to look at film, see guys, meet guys, and you think, okay, I think we're going to be pretty good here. Maybe we have a little more work to do there. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, as you said, when you have had no practices with them, you know, so you don't know what they're going to look like in your systems. Um you know, so like I said, there's some young talent, but, you know, <clears throat> hopefully there's a way that, you know, when this, you know, is all over that, you know, maybe there's a way to, you know, have some type of mini spring ball or something like that, you know, before we get going. So, so we can see these kids. Last one for you, Lane, is have you even had a chance to settle into Oxford? Again, I know you know the town because your brother was there, but I mean, have you even had a chance to look for a house, nevertheless buy a house and things along those lines. Uh, I've struggled with that with just, you know, um, I was, I was finally going to, you know, start to settle down some, you know, with all the hirings of the coaches recruiting, you know, um, getting ready for spring ball, all that. And, um, and then Corona happened. So, you know, right as we were going on spring break. So um, I haven't a lot, but what I've seen, it's, um, it's an awesome place. Lane Kiffin is the new head coach of Ole Miss. Lane, I really appreciate you doing this with me. Thanks a lot, and uh, good luck. Uh, We'll stay safe, and good luck when the season finally does happen. Hopefully we will get a season in. I agree. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a good week. And now, three and out. First down. A few weeks back when Chris Felica was on the show, he's the bear from ESPN's College Game Day, if you don't remember, uh, he, we did some over-under win totals for college football season. Hopefully that will be played. He had Ole Miss as an over at about three and a half. I lean in that direction too. Kiffin has some offensive weapons to work with and has shown that he can be a creative and effective offensive coach. How will Kiffin do in the long run at Ole Miss? Well, I'm definitely a person who believes in track record when it comes to both coaches and programs. Both Kiffin and Ole Miss have shown the ability to reach some pretty high highs and some rather low lows. There's no reason for me to think that his time in Oxford won't include more of the same 
from both him and the Rebels. Second down. Okay, some draft stuff. Here are some of my personal favorite players. Not necessarily first-round picks, but guys I'd be pretty happy to see my NFL team grab. I love Michael Pittman, the receiver from USC. I'm committed blasphemy during the season when I suggested on Twitter that he might be the best receiver in the country. Needless to say, Oklahoma and Alabama fans did not agree with that. I worry about big receivers like Pittman transitioning to the NFL sometimes after they mostly dominate with their size and strength in college. A lack of quickness and speed seems to get exposed in the league, but I'd roll the dice on Pittman possibly having an Alshon Jeffrey type career. From the running backs group, I'll take A.J. Dillon from B.C. to be the guy who outperforms a lot of the players taken ahead of him. At tight end, I think Devin Asiasi from UCLA is one of those former blue-chip recruits whose college career never really took off, but I can see it coming together for him with the right NFL team. From the quarterbacks, I can't say I'm hugely impressed by the physical tools, but I think Jake Fromm has all the elements that could make him a starting quarterback in the NFL for a long time. Now, how good of a starter? I don't know, maybe Andy Dalton, who I know gets dragged a lot. But if you start for six or seven years and can bring a team to the playoff, that could be a pretty valuable pick. So I could possibly see a Jake Fromm having that type of career. Third down. On the defensive side of the ball, I like tackle Davon Hamilton from Ohio State. He was a guy who always seemed to play well when I was watching him. Uh, Jordan Brooks, the linebacker from Texas Tech, strikes me as the type of player you can comfortably pencil in for a productive 10-year career, maybe even make a Pro Bowl or two. Back in the secondary, Alohi Gilman, the safety from Notre Dame, is a guy who's probably a late-round pick, but I would bet on him having a long and pretty productive career, even if not spectacular, in the NFL. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.